This is Class Session 26. Today I'll say a few things about Tolkien's poetry, and then we'll plunge into the Council of Elrond. I want to go back briefly to the scene of Frodo at the Ford of Bruinen when he's confronting the Black Riders. Um, I want to go back and kind of touch on, connect this to some of the themes that we've been looking at before, especially the theme of of luck and fate that we've been seeing come up through the Fellowship of the Ring and we spent a while looking at in The Hobbit. But here what I want to emphasize is not just the fact that there seem to be, surprise, surprise, some more of those fate and luck elements that, that again here we can see in some places the hand of Iluvatar per, uh, presumably interfering. But there's more than that here. What, what this passage illustrates is something that I think, and I've, we've talked about this before, but this is, this is an interesting moment to look at it, um, where Tolkien really carefully balances not only the fact that there is divine guidance to this, not only is there some operative fate that seems to be working here, but that the individual choices of moral agents actually impact events and have real consequences. Tolkien insists on both of those things. Um, and I think that Frodo's reaction to the ring rates, both in the dell under Weathertop when he's attacked and at the Ford of Bruinen, both really illustrate this. Um, Frodo's reaction when he is, in essence, cornered by the ring rates, they have that, that, you know, that furious gallop towards the Ford uh, which Glorfindel's horse narrowly wins, and uh, the Frodo on the back of the elf horse goes streaking across the ford uh, at high speed. He gets across to the other side, turns around on horseback, and faces them because he, he can't, they can't run any further. They've, they've caught them. Now, you remember what happens. They're, they're, again, they're all galloping really fast. They stop. That is, the ringwraiths stop on the edge of the river. And then the Lord of the Ringwraiths urges his horse forward and he comes across into the ford and stops there in the ford. Because Frodo is facing them and he defies them, right? He, so he, he, we have this, this choice to resist on Frodo's part. And he draws his sword um, and utters his uh, really kind of impressing, impressive sounding defiance. This is on page 209. Go back, go back to the land of Mordor and follow me no more. But, uh, of course, Tolkien points out, the riders halted, but Frodo had not the power of Bombadil. What he says doesn't happen. He can't just give orders and they occur. And instead, the ringwraiths mock him. And they twist his words, come back to Mordor, we will take you. So it seems a comical situation. I mean, if you visually picture this, the way that they rendered this visual image in the film looks much more impressive. Right? I mean, you know, Arwen with a big sword standing there on a white horse, def- you know, defying the ring rates in the forest. That looks kind of impressive. Little Frodo on the back of the elf horse, which, you know, we've, we've, our, our attention has been drawn. They, like, he, had to, he had to scoot the stirrups way, way, way up for little Frodo on the back of the huge horse, right, with his tiny little sword, which breaks in his hand. Uh, this is the kind of thing that the witch king can do. Like, you know, I defy you with this crack. Well, I still <laughs> defy you with my shrill little words. I mean, his own voice sounds shrill in his ear. It's, it seems futile. It seems useless and purposeless. Um, but 
it really affects the outcome. Had Frodo not turned and stopped and faced them, what would have happened? Had he kept running? Next. Yeah, yeah, they would have all galloped over the river. The flood didn't start until the Lord of the Ringwraith stepped into the river. The flood would have missed them had Frodo not stopped and defined them. There's, there is an actual consequence. Um, his resistance is effectual, not in the Tom Bombadil sense of I'm going to command Old Man Willow to release them and, and, and you know, he's going to come, you know, Pippin's going to come flying out of the, of the crack of the tree. Not that kind of effectual resistance, but it turns out that it does matter. Marta? Um, yeah, <laughs> mentioned the movie. I think the movie really did it to surface Yeah, yeah. Because even though it was an effectual in the Tom Bombadil sense, it was... I thought that's some real courage. I don't think I could have been able to do it. And, and not only that, but he survived for 17 days. That's yes. huge. Yeah. And the movie kind of succumbs immediately. Yeah, and he's, he's just like lying there and gasping and helpless. And, and he's just, you know, being carried around. And I don't know how long exactly the film is asking us to believe that gallop, you know, across the fields and through the orchards that... that you know, Arwen takes when she, you know, when she, when she gets the fashionable slash on her cheek, and I don't know. So yeah, I mean, it's it's it's, it's I I really like that movie, and she has to. She looks gritty after that. It's pretty cool. <laughs> but but anyway, I mean, I, I I don't know how long that, that's supposed to take. But I agree with you. It really downplays the fact that Frodo, even when he's showing like unconscious strength. I mean, on the one hand, it's not like the whole 17 days he's standing there like, must resist power of the wound. I mean, he's, he's, he's it's just like his nature, right? Uh, but Gandalf does give him credit for it. You know, many warriors of the big people would swiftly have succumbed to that splinter which you bore for 17 days. Gandalf gives him props for it. So, I mean, I, 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 I really agree. This is, this is a big deal. It's appropriate that he is the one who should be stopping. I mean, at that moment at the Ford of Bruinen, Tolkien is showing us outwardly what's been going on for weeks. He's been standing and defying the ring wraith for weeks. Had he, had he submitted, he would have become a wraith already. Um, and, and not only submitted, he has three choices there uh, at the Ford, two of which would have been disastrous, and only one of which turns out well. He could go to them. They call him to come to them. And he could go. Uh, he has lots of reason to go. I mean, they are, they, he is almost under their control. Um, it takes strength for him not to obey them. He could keep running. That also would have been disastrous. And he instead does the third thing, the hardest thing, which is to stand, draw his sword, and resist them. And even though it seems like he accomplishes nothing, you know, he, his sword breaks, he falls down the end um, of, that, of that incident. Nevertheless, it does show, it is a really impressive accomplishment by him, um, and that is reflected in the fact that it, it, does, it does bear fruit. It, it, he is an instrumental part of the defeat of the Ringwraiths at that moment. So is Glorfindel and, you know, so are Glorfindel, Strider, and the others who are charging from the other side. Only half of the Ringwraiths would have been swept away had they not been there and, and the rest of them plunge into the river. Um, so it's, again, it's, it's a group effort, but Frodo's, Frodo's moment there is important. And, of course, it reminds us and reflects the same thing back in the Dell under Weathertop. He, you know, Gandalf emphasizes it's only because he resisted to the last. 
Yes, he gave in to the command to put on the ring. And he's kicking himself for that afterwards. But he charges and attacks. And that's why the knife missed him in the first place. Um, And so, again, in both cases, you know, again, Aragorn points out, you didn't actually do anything. I mean, you didn't actually damage him in any way. Here, look, here's his cloak, which you slashed. Like, congratulations, you, like, damaged the wardrobe of the Witch King. That's, like, what he, the practical thing he accomplishes. But nevertheless, it it matters hugely. Had he not done that, he would would immediately uh, have have succumbed. So in both cases, we see real consequences to his decisions. But at the same time, this is not just a Frodo story. Um, On page 216, when Gandalf is talking about this, Gandalf is explaining who the ringwraiths were and what was going on about the Morgul knife and what would have happened to him. And Frodo says, third paragraph, Thank goodness I did not realize the horrible danger. I was mortally afraid, of course, but had I known more, I should not have even dared to move. It is a marvel that I escaped. Yes, fortune or fate have helped you, said Gandalf. Not to mention courage, for your heart was not touched and only your shoulder was pierced, and that was because you resisted to the last. Fortune or fate have helped you. That's where he started. Yes, you sure were lucky. There were lots of occasions on which this should have gone badly. And fortune miraculously interceded, you know, to, 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 to pull your bacon out of the pan. But he also emphasizes also courage. Your own choices actually did matter. Both of those things are really, are equally operative in this case. Um, both of them, infl- without either one of them, things would have gone hard. Frodo could have had all the courage he wanted. Still, things would have gone really badly had he not been really lucky in several of the ways that we've already talked about. But, but Gandalf emphasizes the contrary is true too. Had Frodo not made the choices he had made, things would have turned out differently. Now, of course, we may remember, it may still be argued, they... They haven't turned out better, but they would have been different, right? But anyway, they would have been different. It would have been an actual difference. Jordan, go ahead. Um, just wanted to remind you of uh, something you told us to remind you of um, several weeks ago. That as we we're approaching the Council of Elwan, we need to discuss the amount of money, colors, and mythopoeia. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, yeah, thanks for reminding me of the mythopoeia thing. As, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll definitely get to that. Um, I hope to talk about Saruman by the time we end. Uh, and I do want to come back to the Mythopoeia thing and look at the differences there, because that is confusing. Thanks for the reminder. Um, oh, oh, one last, uh, one last fortune point. Uh, nah, nah, forget it. I'll talk about that later. Um, before we move on to the Council of Elrond, one last brief note that I just want to, I just want to talk about in passing. I have refrained from discussing in detail a lot of poems at this point. We've been skipping by a lot of poetry, and here's me not spending any time talking about it because I'm trying to stick to the big picture and not indulge myself with all of the close analysis of the poetry that I would like to do. But I do just want to note in passing, as you know, by this point, we've now seen a lot of poems uh, in, in this book so far. And I just want to point out 
the remarkable breadth and complexity of the poems that Tolkien is doing. Tolkien rarely gets any credit as a poet. And, you know, I'm not saying that I think he's one of the great poets of the 20th century, but he is a remarkably able poet and has a really... He's a very thoughtful poet and a very flexible one. Um, And something that I'm having a hard time saying I want to say a very humble one that is humble in the sense of he is willing to write and to put in his books bad poetry on purpose, which sounds ridiculous um, because he is subordinating the verse to the story. Particular characters, uh, particular kinds of character do different kinds of poems under different circumstances. And so we have wildly different poems. I mean, we, you know, within the space of, a, of only a few pages, we get, on the one hand, uh, Strider's recitation of a portion of the Baron and Luthien story in verse, um, which is quite good. And also Sam's old troll song, which is less high-quality poetry. Uh, so adorable. Cute, very cute. Uh, that was originally, by the way, going to be the song that, that Frodo, in his earlier drafts, that was the song that Frodo sang in The Prancing Pony on top of the table. He sang the old troll song originally. And then Tolkien was like, you know, he, the, the Man in the Moon poem sort of he brought in later on and was like, no, this works much better for The Prancing Pony. I think it was a really excellent choice on his part. But um, even that poem, even the, even the, 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 the adaptation of the, um, the Cow Jumped Over the Moon uh, verse into uh, into into song that he does, um, and I would particularly uh, draw your attention to the Arendel was a mariner poem that that Bilbo uh, sings. Um, this is on two twenty seven. <coughs> poetic scheme that he adopts in this poem, that Tolkien develops in this poem, is really remarkable and very intricate. He doesn't just have... I mean, of course, it follows basically... uh, It seems, if you look at the ends of the lines, uh, a fairly simple alternating rhyme pattern, like the, the second and fourth lines are rhymed with each other as we move through. But if you read it, and especially if you read it aloud, you notice that that alternates with um, a multi-syllabic internal rhyme between... the. Uh, just listen to... In panoply of ancient kings and chained rings he armored him, and shining shield was scored with runes to ward all wounds and harm from him. His bow was made of dragon horn, his arrow shorn of ebony. Of silver was his habergeon, his scabbard of chalcedony. His sword of steel was valiant, of adamant, his helmet tall, an eagle plume upon his crest, upon his breast, an emerald. You see that internal rhyme pattern that really binds things together? The, 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 the end of the line rhyme is just sort of the, the, the final conclusion. It's that central rhyme that really gives it its power. This poem has a really interesting uh, history. Um, 
uh, Christopher Tolkien dedicates a whole chapter to it in his book on the writing of The Fellowship of the Ring. Um, it was originally a poem, a silly kind of a joke poem um, that Tolkien wrote uh, uh, well, well before uh, doing this. And he takes this silly little elf poem um, and makes it into a poem about Arendel the Mariner. And in the previous versions, those internal rhymes were even closer uh, and sort of more impressive, though the effect of it was a little bit more comical because it was more rigid uh, than, than, than the final version became. He kind of toned that down when the poem became epic instead of comical. Um, but anyway, it's, he, he is a very careful craftsman in his poetry um, and makes choices not based necessarily on again, you know, what will make for the greatest and finest poetry, but what is most appropriate to the character who's speaking it, to the occasion on which it's spoken, to the whole perspective and worldview. Uh, when you go through The Hobbit, for instance, you, can, you don't even have to read the story. You can learn a lot about hobbits, dwarves, and elves just by reading the poems, uh, and goblins, just by reading the poems that they, that they, that they sing, usually. Um, and that's... It's pretty remarkable the way that he actually uses poems, not just, and now a song, but, but uh, the, the, the real function that they have ideologically and, and within the story. It's, uh, I, 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 so this is my attempt, although I don't have time to go through and talk about all the poems, to exhort you to think about them and to, 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 to look at them more closely on your own. Um, one other even smaller note that I want to make, just because I'm afraid that there might be some confusion. I mentioned in this book, uh, and I just wanted to clarify this. Uh, you'll notice on, the, on the, the, the reading schedule, what we're talking about today is, is book two, chapters two and three. Um, I believe I mentioned before, when Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings, this is not a trilogy. Uh, he wrote it as one book. Um, he wrote it as, you know, it was, it was, it was one volume, um, in six books, you know, it was divided in, into six books. And his publisher originally said, remember, this was the 50s, we're, 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 less than, uh, we're less than 10 years out from World War II, and his publisher was like, there's not enough paper in England uh, to publish a whole lot of copies of your 1,000-page book. Um, and if we do, it's going to be so expensive because paper is so precious. It's, it's, it's going to be so expensive, no one's going to be able to afford to buy it. So his publisher convinced him to subdivide it into three volumes, which were published separately, um, and, which he, and which his publisher then made him give titles for, which he hated. I mean, the, the Fellowship of the Ring, The Two Towers, and The Return of the King um, went through multiple versions, um, and he was kind of dissatisfied with most of them, especially The Two Towers. In fact, which two towers he's referring to. He talks like in two or three places, he names different towers. Uh, you know, so it's, it's, because I mean, it's not how he thought of it. He thought of it as books three and four, as this is books one and two. Um, so I will try to be more or less consistent when I talk about books. I mean, I, I, and, and I will tend to refer to them that way. Um, so keep in mind when I talk about in book two or in book four, I mean those subdivided books, so one and two for the fellowship, two, uh, three and four for the two towers, and five and six um, in the Return of the King. Yeah, Brittany. He made the Return of the King the Yeah, yeah, he, he didn't like that title. And actually, you know, the one of the previous titles he had for the two towers was my favorite uh, because of its internal uh, because of its internal rhyme, "The Treason of Isengard" is what he originally called the second book, which is an awesome title, but I understand why he ditched it because it's, it's a good title for book three, but book four has nothing to do with the treason of Isengard, so he, he, he didn't call the volume that. 
But uh, for purely, uh, on purely euphonic grounds, I find The Treason of Isengard a very appealing title. But anyway, um, just sort of general, general nomenclature note as we uh, are talking about The Lord of the Rings. Derek? Also, that treason could also be a pun because Isengard gets conquered. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> but, but I can live with that. <laughs> the Council of Elrond. So we have, what, like uh, three pages a minute? No problem. So um, Elrond begins by addressing the council and saying that they were all called to be there. And he emphasizes, called, I say, but not by me. Right? That these are the people who have been chosen. So, you know, once again, we see sort of fate at work. Um, I want to look at the ring. We've talked some about the ring of power and what it does and how it affects people. Um, Elrond gives us some backstory, some of which, of course, will be old ground for us. Remember, the Silmarillion was unpublished at the time. So when he's telling the story of Celebrimbor and the rings of power, this is the only time it's ever been told. Um, We have, of course, we bring to this, to this version of the story, the the last section of the Silmarillion. Um, So we already have some of this information, but what does Elrond emphasize about the three rings? The first time we've had, they've been referred to before, but we learn more about them here. Yeah, go. Sauron has never touched them, but if he were to get a hold of the one ring, that they would fall under his dominion. Good. The One Ring has power over them. So they would be, they would be dominated by, by the One if Sauron got it back. But yes, they are themselves pure. They are not corrupted by Sauron. Yeah, Eric? Uh, they don't have the power of corruption. No, they have the power of healing. And, uh, sort of like yes, good. Yeah, uh, one movement at the council is to say, hey... Um, the three rings I hear are very mighty rings. There are elf lords here. Why don't we uh, talk about ways in which we can deploy the three rings? And, this, and Elrond says, they don't work that way. They're not, they don't give power in battle. They're not weapons that can be used. Um, what are they for again? What is their power, Josh? They bestow wisdom on whoever wears them. Yes. They also... Wisdom and understanding. Yeah, good. And what else? Preservation. Preservation, yes. To to preserve unstained things. Um, Notice when they're in Rivendell, people say things like, Bilbo says, time doesn't seem to count here. It just is. Right? And Bilbo says, I could never keep track of days in Rivendell. Gosh, I wonder why that is. Right? I mean, it seems fairly clear. I remember this is even how, uh, how Tolkien says it in that final part of the Silmarillion, that as the age went on, it became apparent that one of the rings is in Rivendell and one of the rings is in Lothlorien. And all you have to do is go in and find, wow, like, I am in the middle of like, a preserved little bubble, you know, a, a little bubble of elven timelessness. That's the power of the ring, uh, the ring at work. Elrond has one, Galadriel has one, um, and you can see them using them. Um, in some ways, of course, this kind of power can be understood as, in a very indirect sense, a weapon against Sauron um, to preserve 
memory uh, to preserve and support goodness. I mean, we talk, you know, they, they talk about places where there are strength to resist Sauron. There is strength there. Um, but you're not going to go marching into Mordor with the three rings and take over the place. And if you try, you're likely to, you're likely to get in trouble. This is, of course, how the one ring corrupts you, as we've talk, talked about before. It plays upon especially desires for power. Um, remember, Gandalf emphasizes the only measure that Sauron knows is desire, desire for power. And by that, he judges all things. And Elrond is emphasizing that is not at all what was in the heart of the elves, that the three rings are in this way completely different because the whole purpose, the whole concept of them is different. Now, Boromir, of course, makes his famous speech, which turns out to be a bad idea. Um, What do we see in Boromir's speech? Boromir, of course, famously suggests that we should use the one ring against Sauron. Cassie, what do you think? How? Um, Just because, I don't know, I saw a lot of Numenorians in here, like, going back to the Silmarillion, and saw how they wanted what they wanted then, and he wants the power of the ring because they need aid now. Yeah, yeah, there's... I think there are some ways in which Boromir and his argument should should smell a little bit Numenorean to us. I mean, it's not like Boromir is saying, let us go and seize immortality, hooray, and he's not... But also, we can't forget about the fact they have already explained how having the ring, in fact, does uh, prolong life. He's already heard that, so, you know... He's not, he's not talking about that. He's not saying, I want the ring because I want to be immortal. Um, but he is at the very least saying, sure, there are bad things associated with the ring, but that's okay. I don't mind that. I'm willing to accept that for the sake of defending our city. Sure, it'll be a self-sacrificial thing. Yeah, Travis? Uh, there's a lot of pride because even though all these you know, great wise people like uh, Gandalf and Around warning him, like, seriously, you can't use it. It's a bad idea. Like, nah, we can completely handle it. We've got this one. Yeah, yeah. Even further, it's almost, I mean, he considers, he doesn't say this, but the way he talks sort of sounds like it would be appropriate for the, for, you know, the Numenorean descendants, for the, you know, for, for the Gondorians to use it, right? The men of Gondor are valiant, uh, and they will never submit. But valor needs first strength and then a weapon. Let the ring be your weapon, he says. Right? I mean, it's, it's perfectly logical, right? We are the great valiant ones. We need a weapon. Here's a weapon. We should use it, right? And, and that's not just pragmatics in the sense of a good weapon would help us win, but it would be fitting for us to have such a weapon. And I think you can see not just a personal pride uh, in Boromir, which we certainly see plenty of, um, and we see him, I mean, clearly, like, you want to you wanna push Boromir's buttons? Like, the button to push is clearly, like, 
oh, Gondor is waning. Oh, man, say Gondor is waning in front of, in front of Boromir, and he's going to jump up in your face, right? Boromir wanes, you say. But, or, Gondor wanes, you say. But uh, that's actually an interesting slip there, isn't it? He clearly identifies himself with it. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that, that works, actually. I wish I meant to say that. But anyway, uh, you know, Gondor wanes, you say. But Gondor stands, and still the, the end of its strength is still very strong, right? I mean, he's very defensive, about that. And so there you can see not only a personal pride, but this kind of national pride, this kind of civic pride, which, is, which, which clearly runs very deep in him. Kelly? Um, I, the thing that stood out to me is his desperation, because uh, he knows that Gondor will fight to every last man, woman, and child. But though he doesn't come to the council to ask for aid, he knows that they need it, because eventually, you know, they've been acting as the bulwark of the West for so long, but eventually they're going to get worn down. Yeah, yeah, no, and I think this is, it's a really important thing to remember. It's, I think that in his depiction of Boromir, Tolkien takes some care not for him just to look like a jerk or a bad guy, Um, because he's not. He is in need. They are in need. They They are in a pretty desperate situation. They are the front line. I mean, you look at the map. I mean, they are next door neighbors to... To Mordor, and they, you know, and there is you can hear his pride, but I think I mean, I, but I agree with Kelly. We can also hear the desperation beneath that pride when he says, "Though I do not ask for aid, we need it." Um, it takes a lot for Boromir, I think, to to even admit that. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think that that is something that we we definitely must. Remember, yeah, Brittany? I also think it feels because Gondor is on the front lines that they should have the final decision what should be done and that, and that he forgets that if they fail, other people are still in danger. Yeah, yeah. Gondor at stake. Good, and you can see this. Remember uh, the comment that Aragorn makes. Um, or, uh, what, both, both Aragorn and Elrond talk about this, uh, that Boromir tends to slip into talking as if the Gondorians are the only ones fighting against Sauron, right? And he says, you know, it would comfort us to know that others were fighting with all of the strength that they had, and Elrond's like, then be comforted. <laughs> you're not the only ones fighting. You're the only ones that you see down there on the battlefield. But, you know, there are more battles going on, and there are more frontiers than the frontier of Gondor. Be comforted. Um, and Aragorn emphasizes, you know, if, you know, he, he compares the role of Gondor to the role of the rangers up in the north. Um, and points out, hey, like, you guys think you don't get any credit, right? Let's 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 have a who gets less credit competition between Gondor and the Rangers. Yeah, Derek. Well, uh, two things. Um, one, in Boromir's defense, um, Gondor's a lot closer to Mordor than Rivendell, and um... yeah, it's, and this certainly is the urgency, right? I mean, they talk about like. Oh, could we hold out if Sauron came here to Rivendell in force? And Boromir's like, by which point my entire land would have been completely overwhelmed? Yeah, let's not even talk about that. Right? So, so yeah, I mean, clearly he has a stronger sense. Because they're talking about, like, you know, someday down the road, Sauron will come to Rivendell. Yeah, uh, Boromir's concerns are a little more immediate <laughs> than, than that. Right, I agree. And uh, this really made me laugh um, when uh, uh, Sar- Saruman has this... Radgus bashing moment. Oh, yeah. Radgus the fool. Yeah. I'm the many colored and again. I was like, I like white better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I like white better. It's like, yeah, that's a fashion. <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah, 
well, of course, there's more there than white looks good on you. But yes, yes, no, yeah, you're, 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 you're certainly right. Um, one other point of pride that I would like to point out, though, about Boromir. Um, Elrond says at the beginning, you've been called. Was Boromir called? Um, he and Faramir both have this dream, that, and he goes to Elrond to, to, for his wisdom in order to interpret this vision that they've had. The only ones who were actually called, like, like audibly called, and like, who you know, had a vision in which somebody said, go to Imladris. I mean, there's like <laughs> one, and it, it was them, Right. Everyone else just kind of came there because they had questions and they wanted answers, and so they decided to go to, to, to Rivendell independently. The, the guys from Gondor actually received a call in a vision in a dream. Who received it? Remember how Boromir describes that? Marta, what did he say? Um, I'm just trying to remember precisely. Baromir, I think, got it first. Yes. And then Boromir. And Boromir said, well, I'm really strong, so I'll go. Yes. Yes. Um, Boromir, Faramir received the dream first and many times. He says, the same dream came to him again many times and once to me. He did have it once, but it came many times to Faramir and to Faramir first. But Boromir says, he came instead of Faramir because he took the journey on himself. Um, it kind of sounds like Faramir was the one who was called here and not Boromir. Boromir has stepped in. Now, he did have the dream once, but this was Faramir's dream, which he had once. But this was Faramir's dream. Faramir was called, not him. So he's already put himself forward in a way which is which sort of bespeaks his pride, I think. Well, he also talks about how long it took him to get there and what he went through without even thinking about, like, everything Frodo just went through to get to Rivendell. Yeah, yeah. And, well, and, and of course, we can see in the, the dynamics between him and Aragorn are a little prickly at, on several occasions. Uh, I mean, and, 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 and look, Aragorn is as prickly about it as Boromir. I mean, he's, he nettles him a couple times. Right, the leagues between Minas Tirith and here are a small measure compared to my journeys. Right, like don't don't come crying oh for a journey of 110 days. I'm sure you're awful proud of yourself about that. But come on now, <laughs> let me talk about my journeys. And he's I mean so, um, and then of course Boromir openly you know if uh, if if the you know he talks about the you know maybe the sword that was broken would help to stem the tide. If the hand that, you know, if the, the one who wields it has inherited the sinews of the kings of men and not an heirloom only. Uh, and, you know, Aragorn's like, who can tell? We'll see, my friend, someday. I mean, so there's some serious tension here between Boromir and Aragorn. Uh, and, you know, both of them keep it civil, but, uh, but we can definitely see it. And, but again, Boromir seems to be responding. It, it, they've revealed Aragorn as the heir of Isildur. Um, this is a little bit threatening to Boromir. Um, certainly kind of changes his own understanding of, of himself and his, his land. Yeah, Travis, you were waiting before. Uh, I was just going to say, can we ever actually be sure that Boromir even had the dream? Because his brother had it first in so many times. And then maybe Boromir's like, oh yeah, no, I just had that dream too. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I... I'd be surprised if you're actually just lying about it. Um, even in a few chapters, even uh, Sam will say that he thinks that lying is not Boromir's way. And I think he's probably right about that. Um, he, he probably had it at least once. But, but it's, it's still, it seems pretty clear, you'd think, that Faramir was the one who really should have been. And, of course, when we meet Faramir uh, in, in Book 4... I suspect at that time that you'll probably agree with me that he would have probably been better had Faramir been the one to answer this call instead of Boromir. Things, things, different, w- but not better. Things would have been definitely different, uh, and probably would have looked better in the short term. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, Brittany. Um, am I allowed to ask about like Boromir's family dynamics compared to <laughs> <laughs> Yes, um, the one thing I would emphasize is. There is, you will remember in the films that from the beginning, this is a like Denethor favoring Boromir, and it's Denethor's favoritism against, with Boromir's reluctance in the film, um, that forces Boromir to, and pushes Faramir to the side and forces Boromir to go. So, the fact that Boromir goes instead of Faramir in the movies is a Denethor story, not a Boromir story. The main thing I would emphasize is here, this is a Boromir story. This is, there's no reference to Denethor throughout this. Um, we will see throughout this section, I mean, about the choosing to go. They're not making up that stuff about the, the dynamics between Denethor and Boromir and Faramir. And we'll come back to that um, later on in Book 5. But, um, but only when we meet Denethor and Faramir will that, will that really come up. That doesn't seem to be this. There's no evocation of that at all here. Um, but it's a good thing to remember. Sometimes one of the things that you have to do, especially if you know the films pretty well, is consciously remind yourself of the things that are not here um, because it's easy to kind of slip into particular patterns. Oh, like for instance, one thing you'll remember, one of the frameworks of the film um, the response when Boromir in the council says, hey, let's use the ring against him, the response is, unfortunately, we can't. It won't work for anybody except Sauron. And that's the premise that the film operates on. That's not true. They certainly could. It would be a disastrously bad idea, but they could. There are, I don't know how many people, five, six, sitting around this table who could pick up the ring and, 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 and go and, and, and kick Sauron out of Mordor as soon as they could walk there. Right? I mean, Elrond could definitely do it. Gandalf could definitely do it. Strider could do it. Gorfindel could probably do it. I don't know about Arrestor from the Havens, but I mean, there are a bunch of candidates here of people who would clearly have the power um, to wield the ring against Sauron. Um, it's not as simple as they make it in the film. It's not just that the ring won't function for them. It's that if it does, it will overwhelm them and it will destroy them, um, morally destroy them. Um, they will just become tyrants like Sauron. They will they will take his place rather than actually def- than 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 simply defeating uh, his evil. Three minutes, and I did want to get to Saruman. No, 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 no. Okay, Saruman, three minutes. 
It is perilous to study too deeply the arts of the enemy. This is one of the the morals that Elrond draws from the Saruman story. Um, What happened to Saruman? One of the things that we can see in the story of Saruman that Gandalf gives us is we've looked at several times at how evil operates, what evil people are like, what makes them tick in Tolkien's world. In Saruman, we get, maybe not for the first time, but one of the clearest views of how you get evil, how you move from being good to being evil. And this is important because, of course, Elrond points out this is what happens to everybody. Nothing is evil in the beginning, he says. Even Sauron wasn't so. Even Melkor wasn't so. Presumably even Ungoliant wasn't so. Right? Nothing is evil in the beginning. So there comes, in, 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 in any time where there is an act of evil, any time where there is a person who has become evil, there has been a process of the shift from good to evil. And that we haven't seen very much. We see it some in Melkor. That's probably the clearest glimpse we get. We see it in the rebellion of the, of the Numenorians. There are a couple places where we can see some sort of gradual steps. Saruman is, a, is an interesting one, I think, um, and an important one. How does it work? Could somebody please summarize this for me in 35 seconds? I'd appreciate it. <laughs> what do we see in his speech to Gandalf, which kind of reveals his mindset? I mean, how do you wake up one day and decide, hmm, I think I'm going to begin a career of evil? Travis? Doesn't he still kind of feel that he's working for the greater good? Uh, Sauron's, you know, pretty awesome. We should probably just side up with him because there's not going to be anything left. Yeah, because he's going to win, right? And we, we don't have to change our perspective. You know, we can... We'll, we will deplore many evils, by the way, right? We, we can keep on disapproving of the bad things that Sauron does privately. But, hey, we'll still be on the winning side. And by joining the winning side, this is the only way that we can effectually bring, a, bring to pass good things. Ultimately, for Saruman, it's a means and ends situation, Right? He says this explicitly. Nothing would change in our ends, only in our means. Yeah. Carmen. And he says he thinks it'd be better if the wise were in control. And he's trying to tell Gandalf that they always strive for knowledge, rule, and order. So you're doing the right thing if you side with me. Exactly. We're upholding our ultimate goals: knowledge, rule, order. Um, so yeah, if that's what we're doing, we're still good guys, right? What's the problem here? Is there a problem? Oh, Saruman doesn't think there's a problem, right? Um, Gandalf has a problem with this. In fact, do you remember, what does he compare Saruman to? He says, I've heard speeches like this before. From whom has he heard speeches like this? Brittany, do you remember the passage? Emissaries of Mordor, sent out to deceive the ignorant. This sounds like bad Mordor propaganda, Saruman. In fact, I mean, his implication here, you would have to be foolish to buy that. You don't really expect me to buy that, do you? Because, of course, Saruman is not being honest here. 
He does not really, his proposal is not really, uh, Gandalf, you and I, side by side, together, will be like the great team for good and unorthodox ways. <laughs> right? Really, he's searching for his own power at Gandalf's expense. And Gandalf calls him on this. Don't bother to say we. Only one hand at a time can wield the one. Yeah. Um, look at how he speaks down to the elves and the men and their allies. Um, that clearly affects things. Okay, that was more than 35 seconds. Bye. We'll pick up with, I want to start next time with what uh, Jordan reminded me of. Uh, the multicolored robe that Saruman is wearing and the, the similarity between that language and the passage in Mythopoeia about splintered light. In the next class, I'll try to go back and finish up the council as swiftly as I can, because we have some action-packed terrain ahead of us. In the next class, we'll cover Book 2, Chapters 4 through 6, which includes the trip through Moria, the Bridge of Khazad-dûm, and the company's arrival in Lothlorien. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.